0: Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kant. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and its sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming third, still yet to be revealed, but soon to be revealed, adventure that will be available early in uh, 2020. So look forward to that. Uh, Banneker Bones is an 11-year-old biracial boy detective. I call him uh, middle-grade Batman. Uh, He has got a trench coat filled with uh, grappling hooks, smoke bombs, all sorts of uh, technological advancements but you would expect a detective uh, who's fighting giant robot beings to have. He rides around on a jetpack. He's got an EMP blast rifle to uh, blast those uh, giant robot beings out of the sky. When the alligator people show up, you know he's in trouble. It's me doing my worst fear, but as a middle grade novel, because I'm just terrified of the thought of an alligator person waiting for me someday in the sewer. Uh, it's a sewer. It's a deep and pressing concern that I've hoped to uh, excise by writing Bandica Bones and the alligator people. Uh, if you are curious, you can check out the first book as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as my young adult title, All Together Now, A Zombie Story, uh, which is essentially a Walking Dead fan fiction. Uh, I got slow creeping zombies, lots of despair. Uh, I think teenagers are the ideal characters for the zombie apocalypse because Uh, at its base a fear of zombies is really about a fear of conformity what if society comes and assimilates us all and i think that that uh, is never more present than when you're dealing with a teenager uh, who has to make all of these life decisions in rapid order and be prepared to be assimilated into uh the wider adult board uh so i think that um zombies are just perfect for teenagers and god knows i love chasing them so much i also wrote a um uh, sort of sequel, prequel-type book all right now, a short zombie story, which is also available. Uh, and then I've got a five-volume serial horror novel called The Book of David, uh, which is about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. Uh, it's me doing my Stephen King imitation, and I throw that out a lot, but there are multiple Stephen King references throughout it. Uh, my my tone and style is written uh, as close as a mimic as I can get to Stephen King because I've read everything he ever wrote, at least much of it at least twice. Not Tommyknockers, but most of it at least twice. Uh, in fact, at one point, the characters are driving around in a Takuro spirit, which is an extremely deep cut that you Dark Tower fans are going to love. Uh, and everybody else will probably just read over and keep going, but it makes me squee when I get to it. Uh, if you're curious, the Book of David, like I say, is five volumes long. The first volume, the Book of David, Chapter One, by Robert Kent, is available to download for free as an ebook whenever you're watching or listening to this. Or you can purchase the paperback once you're hooked on the story. Come see me with money for chapters two, three, four, and five. Um, if you're curious to keep up with what's going on at the podcast, go to middlegradeninja.com. Uh, I've got a listing of all of our future episodes, our planned guests, plus an archive of hundreds of uh, interviews with authors, literary agents, editors, folks that you would be curious to read interviews with. Those are available as well as all of the past episodes of the show. Uh, today, I am couldn't be more thrilled. I am honored to be talking with Stephanie Duhl. Uh Stephanie, how are you today?
1: I'm well, thank you. How are you?
0: I couldn't be more excited. I uh, had a wonderful writing night last night. Got uh, a little over 2,000 words before I hit the hay. Uh, This morning, I'm up with coffee chatting with you. I'm living a charmed writing life this week.
1: Good for you. Are you doing NaNoWriMo? Uh,
0: No. Uh, I'm just writing a lot in November. Um, (laughs) I don't have any ambition of finishing an entire book. I've I've done that before. Uh, And what I find is if, if I get a full manuscript in a month, I'm going to spend another three months fixing the thing I hurriedly wrote down, so it's, it's better for me just go slow and steady and get it done. Are you uh, participating in NaNoWriMo?
1: Oh, no. I, I, I'm a tortured writer. I write, you know, 100 words and then say, oh, I own, nah. get rid of 80 of those, keep 20, add 5, minus 3. Oh, well, that was a good day. <laughs> and, and, and so it, my style of writing would would not would not work well
0: are you uh, an everyday writer
1: no no i, I yeah you know, i live with a lot of it for a long time and then what i find is when i begin a book it, it's sort of a a slow process of you know it's some words here and it's a walk there and it's a thinking here and some more words and and then when I will reach a certain point in the book, I can't get it out fast enough. So that's where the everyday writing comes in. But that's about—it's certainly past the halfway mark. It might even be the two thirds, and then and then it's the race home.
0: So how much time are you talking for the first um, first two thirds or so, first half?
1: Oh, months. Um, months. You know that that can go as long as six months.
0: Gotcha. So six months, and then is that last bit look like a month, two months? Pardon? Then the last bit looks like maybe a month, two months. Yeah.
1: It the last one's about a, the last one's about a month, and then you know then you sort of start to look for your rewrites on it and all of that. But it's you know because a lot of it's about I am. I, um, and I know we'll talk about this probably later, but I'm just going to jump on it. You know, it's I anything you want. Who plots and who, you know, the plotters versus the panthers, who flies by the seat of their pants and who actually does outlines and all of that. I sort of, I plot only in my head, so it really becomes about I will have sort of it. it, it sort of, you've seen the movie, you know, you kind of, and then you start to write, and then you and and. The research and the this. And so it just keeps adjusting and morphing and adjusting and morphing. And then you hit a point where you, you, it's all come together. And now it's just the race home. So that first that first portion of the book will take me eight months, nine months sometimes.
0: So do you have some idea of what your ending might be or are you just...
1: Oh, I know exactly what the ending is until it's not. (laughs) 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 That's what I mean by sort of in my head. I see this, you know, I see this movie and, you know, this is it. And then information will come in along the way from the research, from this, from that, from characters that you didn't see in advance. and, And suddenly the ending is different than you'd imagined it. But generally I find it's the same ending, even if it's executed differently.
0: So do you, I mean, are you writing, I assume obviously you're not writing a formal outline. Do you keep just like notes of scribbled things of this might be my next chess move or is it all up here in your head the whole time?
1: It tends to all be there except that I will think of something where I'm like, well, that'll be great, but that's got to come way later. So then I'll scribble, you know, two, three notes to myself to just say, don't forget about this because it's really good.
0: And are you letting the characters... Um, one of my favorite things about writing is when the characters start to do things on their own that you hadn't anticipated, but now you have to make room for.
1: Well, that's exa- that's it. It's the it's the oh my god, they, you know this is really good. They're going to have this argument about this. They're not ready for this argument. You know, let me write it down. Let me write down the argument they're having so that later on, and I can go back and I will have these random half pages of notes, all of which went into books, not necessarily. The way I wrote it in that moment, but the intent of it all wound up somewhere.
0: So, do you write your stories in order during that initial time?
1: Yes, it's all. I, that's why I'll take notes on things that will be further down the line, because I will write. You know, page one, chapter one. Here we go.
0: <laughs> and is that the same when you're uh, working on things for the screen? Same process or different process when you're doing that?
1: Uh, for me, it's a different process because I um, What I've done for for screen, I've gotten, you know, in essence, hired to come in and there's a showrunner. So I'm getting them. So it's it's a different process because you're looking at somebody's outline or somebody's thumbnail. And, you know, the notes you're giving are on concept. Oh,
0: okay.
1: you know, like. like Oh no, we can't do that. We're in Nova Scotia and we don't have one of those. So could we find something that will satisfy you the same way? But we will have one up.
0: Gotcha. So because that's a little bit more collaborative, that's uh you can't keep it all up here, I assume.
1: Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and I guarantee you that I have a million showrunners in my past who will all say, We wish she would just keep it up here. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been uh, a dream.
0: It occurs to me that uh, esteemed audience hasn't been uh, stalking you and, and and reading everything about you online for uh, the past week or so. Um, so, if you would just to to get a, uh, get everybody caught up to where I'm at, uh, if you could give esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your background.
1: Thank you. Hello, uh, esteemed audience. Uh, my background is I came up at, in the in the world of film and television. I have been. A studio exec, I have been a network exec, and what I am perhaps best known for is my producing roles, and I've done a lot of science fiction episodic television, which includes Haven, Dead Zone, Dresden Files. As you can see, there's a sort of theme in those. I did Missing as well, which uh, starred Vivica Fox for a Lifetime, and... During that same time period, an overlapping point in time, um, which was actually during the writer's strike, I had always said I was going to write a book one day, I was going to to write the great American novel, excuse me, the great American novel, and I sat down during the writer's strike, there was no work, and I sat down and put pen to paper, and that became the first novel I wrote, which was called The Carousel, and... You know, I kind of wrote it for me and there was no pressure because it was sort of one of those, well, can I do it? Can't I do it? Wound up published, wound up winning a bunch of awards, which was lovely. And and the writer was born, you know, or, or the writer, I should say, was probably freed. I, I think we are, those of us who write sort of need to write. And the writer was freed during that period. And then I began balancing both the producing and the writing.
0: Had you uh, always been uh, a reader, I assume? yes had you had aspirations to write prior to the writer's strike fiction as opposed to for film
1: um the answer is yes i mean without question i you know what got me through all the years of school was an ability to write you know so you could always sort of you know essay oriented classes were a gift. It was like, oh yeah, yeah, I can do an essay on that, you know. So the ability to write is is always what carried me through, and then in film, I wound up in producing, you know. And that's why I say, but the novel haunted me for a long time. It was it was something I had intended to do, and and then you know sort of found this this bulk period of time where I sort of could say, okay, well this is it. You talk about it, you think about it,
0: and now it's it's time to do it, right. Got so many days on this earth, by God, let's spend some of them getting this thing done. Exactly. So, I mean, I looked at your your, your IMD page and, and just marveled, as I assume uh, esteemed audience who's listening to this has got one hand on Google, like, wait a minute, <laughs> because those, those aren't obscure, quiet shows uh, that, that you've been a, a part of. These are, are great big deals. I assume something like that doesn't happen by accident. Did you start off with a um, with a clear goal of, I want to do television, or where where did you start in your creative journey?
1: Uh, okay, the creative journey starts at about age six, and and and, and I knew then. I, I we'd gone to 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 the movies, and 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 I came out of the movies, and I, I looked at my mom, and I said, "I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to make a movie one day." And she said, as mothers do, "Okay, whatever <laughs> makes you happy, keep going." So I kind of had this this absolute tangible, and I say tangible because it was very real to me that that's what I was going to do. I was going to go out and make movies. And I, you know, and I went out, I graduated college, went out west and, you know, and knocked on a lot of doors.
0: What uh, college did you uh, graduate from?
1: The University of Maryland.
0: Okay. So not surrounded by, you know, you weren't hanging out summering with Steven Spielberg and <laughs> Francis Stanley,
1: Sadly for me, no. It would have been a lot easier. Um, you know, I knocked on a lot of doors and finally got a job in the business and develop in the development business, which is great as for anybody who wants to write in whatever that capacity is, you know, whether you're reading somebody's slush pile at a, at a you know, agency, or whether you're working in development, they are, the more you read, the more you know, the more you understand. And the first script that I was paid to read, um, which was, you know, I was paid, you know, $40 a script, to read them and write them and you know write them up and, and all of that
0: how long did that uh, take you to do
1: um i read very quickly i don't type anywhere near as fast so that was a slight problem there's you know um <laughs> but you know it was let's just say you you needed to read an awful lot to make your rent okay
0: and it was So we're talking forty dollars for what five hours ten hours
1: Oh, no, I I was probably faster than that. I would say it was about probably the average one was probably about somewhere between three and four. OK. So, you know, you can knock off two to three a day depending on what they were. And you and now you're at the, the bottom portion for people who may not ever have done any kind of reading for someone else is always about your opinion and why. And. By the time you read your 50th script, you would revise your first script's opinion. Cause you know, you start out sort of on this. Well, I mean, it had lots of promise and you know, and, and but you learn things that don't work and you, you, know, you learn. I, I read a wonderful quote and I wish I could remember who said it, but I don't. So I'm just gonna throw it out there and say, I, it's not me who thought it up, <laughs> um, which is you can teach craft, but you can't teach art. And so you learn craft to go behind whatever your art is, because I think many of us are born with different art. But you learn craft, and you learn a lot of craft. And so it it was a great training ground for me, and that was how I began.
0: And so um, I assume that carries through now into your fiction work, where you start maybe to tell a story one way and to say, "Nope, I've read forty failed versions of of that." There are hundreds of failed versions of that. I know that's a pitfall. I know that's a pitfall. So let me go straight down the center. Well, or does it not get that easy?
1: No, but I, I think what happens is so many, you know, you know th- our lives inform what we do. And so when people read The Carousel, the most repeated refrain about my writing was people would say, it, it was kind of like reading a movie. It's kind of like watching a film. And I would laugh and I, you know, and it took me a long time to understand what it was about my writing that made people react that way. I mean, it made perfect sense. You know, I had a big film background and then it took me a very long time to identify it.
0: Why? uh, Why do you think they're having that reaction?
1: Uh, Because I tend to write foreground. (laughs) You know, television (laughs) is a very foreground world. You know, you don't. You know, whereas you'll read other authors who will go into a lot of description about different things and this and that. When you work in when you work in television, you know the the or or film, you know it's it's you don't get that extra dimension. So, you know, as, as I used to say, when you'd read the stage directions and the stage directions would go into some big thing, and you'd say, am I supposed to run that as a you know um, along the bottom of the screen? So that people at home know. (laughs) Or do you want to tell me what you want to see? And, you know, when you realize that, you know, the the writing, what that's done is it creates a world in which when I will talk about my writing, I'll say, well, there's this scene. You know, somebody else might call it a chapter. Somebody else might, you know, everybody has different language. For me, it all comes from those years. And and all of that reading is that there's a scene. That's how I see how I write.
0: So when... uh... Well, having been a, a producer of so many shows, I assume that uh, you know going in that what, what's written on the page is this is going to be our setting. Uh, could absolutely change just depending on, on budget, availability, all sorts of factors that are beyond your control. Uh, so when you're writing for film, do you even bother with that much setting uh, ahead of time?
1: Okay. I'm, a, I'm not sure the exact question in here. So what I'm going to say is when you, when you write in film, Absolutely, You put down everything you want and then you die. You know, I think some of the bravest writing souls in the business are network showrunners because they come in and, you know, they have to create a season of, of work and they have to hire a bunch of people to help facilitate that that vision comes through and then. Once, they, So that's where they are. They're sort of this gatekeeper person of managing through a writer's room. And on the other hand, every single thing they manage up will be subject to 5,863 opinions. And some of those opinions are, you know, I don't like a Ferris wheel. Why can't it be on a roller coaster? Okay, we call those the different, but not necessarily better. You know, then you have the I think the roller coaster and t- getting the camera hookup is going to be smarter because we can put the camera right over here, versus if we go to a Ferris wheel and we have to mount cameras over to here, what do you think? And it's like, oh, okay, I can live with that. And that's, you know, the collaboration of trying to get, but You know, as a novelist, how many notes you will go through with an editor. And that's one pass of notes. Okay, they that showrunner will take notes from production, notes from other writers in the room, notes from producers, notes from executives, notes from studios, notes from networks. And have to somehow and of course, all those notes will never match up. And yet their job is to create one vision and then to hold that vision steady through the year, every week of their life, with that amount of notes coming through. It's an extraordinary position.
0: So, how freeing must it be when it's just you and the page and it's just your call?
1: Now you understand. <laughs>
0: We chatted with uh, Greg Millman um, a few episodes back, worth checking out in the archives of Steve Nullius, Uh And he's a screenwriter uh, and, and, and been involved in, in numerous Hollywood campaigns. Uh, and I asked him, "Did you ever query a single traditional publisher?" And he went, "No, absolutely not. I went straight to self-published. Nobody is making a call on this book. That's not me. This is my time." <laughs> it's like fair enough. <laughs> there you go. So. Um, So many questions uh, to get to, and I know we're going to I want to circle back and I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, TV production as opposed to writing, because I'm fascinated about the differences and similarities between the two. Um, But I know that we absolutely have to talk about uh, Sid Roman's Silicon Alley adventure series, the newest of which, Say Her Name, is available December 10th. Don't let us get too far in without reminding esteemed audience that they, depending on when they're listening to this, can either pre-order or go right out and read Say Her Name or start with book one on a LARP. Now we're talking. (laughs) See,
1: I come with visual, you know, aids.
0: Congratulations to you on uh, completing your trilogy. That is extremely exciting. That must be uh, tremendously fulfilling. It,
1: it is, and, and, and the nicest part is the, the growth that you get to experience. Um, I say, in Say Her Name, the mystery is perhaps the, you know, the, the, the least mysterious of the mysteries because it's the most emotional of the books. And so it was really for me a pleasure.
0: And um, uh, I'm going to pretend I didn't already ask you about this. Do you have ambitions to potentially write a fourth book?
1: Um, I have ambitions. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, and that that I have a fourth. I have a fourth story. I might even have a fifth, but I also may want to just take a break, write something different, and then come back. I haven't really decided yet. Uh, when I finish a book, I think people, I, I, I hope the audience that is listening to this have, have heard this and felt this in their own lives. You kind of hear the voices of the people in your head. It's as though they are chatting with you, chatting by themselves, chatting about things you didn't even know you needed to chat about. And, and and so as you're finishing and the writing is flowing and you're coming to that end and you're racing home, you know, they're still talking. So you have this this wonderful time in which, you know, the thought is almost pure. And so you just really want to go write the next book, but you need to stop because you need to edit this one because it has a date that it has to go to the marketplace. And. So. During that period, I have this absolute clarity of what I'd like the next book to be. Now that I had to hold up and do the editing and all of that, you know, I asked them to just please wait over there. <laughs> and the question is do you open the trunk and, and, and go back to that and hope that that voice is still right where you left it and you can bring it back out? Or do you just want to take a break and write something different? I haven't quite decided yet. I love I've- Sid Rubin and her pals, so I could. I could write the Sid Rubin Silicon Alley adventures all day. It's fun for me.
0: Well, I assume that because you're going through, you know, multiple revisions, um, uh, I, I, I know it's certainly a part of my process, and and, and most process for, of all the folks I've chatted with, it that you get to a point where you still love the characters, but you kind of hate them a little bit too, just because you spent so much time with them. It's it's time for a little bit of a break, maybe a little vacation, a little little vacation away from each other, and then we'll come back more in love than ever. Um, <laughs> do you? Uh, do, are you, when you've written three books, do you or, or even two, do you feel that need for a break or do you feel just boundless enthusiasm? Let's do uh, Sydney Goes Hawaiian. Let's do this.
1: <laughs> I think for me, the hardest part is feeling the. I didn't want to do. I'll just say part of the inspiration for the whole Sid Rubin Silicon Alley adventure series Comes from my great love of of the mysteries that I read growing up. You know, so you had the Hardy Boys, and Nancy Drew, you know, it, and and all of those, and you kind of graduated into the Agatha Christies and then Niall Marsh, and so it. It is an outgrowth of, of that love, and and those are very dated. I'm not talking about Agatha Christie. I'm talking about the Nancy Drew. Party boys books, you know, they're dated. They were they were of a time and a place and an era, and I really wanted to sort of recreate those those friendships, but make them very contemporary. And that sort of where this initially blossomed from. And what was important to me was that the stories I'm telling underneath that feel like very real world in in this day in this age, and so. I think the hardest part for me is deciding more on the story than on the characters themselves. I love the characters and finding their emotional growth for me is actually sort of very easy. Uh, there's, there's a great deal of affection, but I don't want to just say, oh, and here's the easy mystery of who left the chalk on the in, in the classroom. So it's about where are those layers and why are they important and why am I telling this? And, and that for me takes a while.
0: And do you feel the, I feel this, so, I'm, so that's why I'm asking, I'm projecting. Uh, do you feel the need to up one-up yourself over, okay, well, I've done three stories this way, and I've, I've covered that, and... and Good on me. I've done a tremendous job, uh, but if I'm going to do this again, it's got to be bigger. It's got to be something more we haven't seen. Let's take Sid to a, a new, deeper place, um, while still retaining some some semblance of obviously of, of the character and and the the aspect. The, the, the things about the series that readers have come to love. Do you feel that pressure that if you were to come back to fourth, it can't just be Sid goes Hawaii and Sid comes back. It's got to be something that's going to justify uh, a fourth adventure. Or do you feel the kind of comfort where it could be like James Bond and there's always another one. You can just keep it going that way.
1: Um, no, I think, I think I'm I'm going with, I'm going with your first option there. I'm going with option A. Uh, <laughs> That is, and that is the whole trick. The trick is, where are they? Where are they going to go? They being this this group of five friends, occasionally six, sometimes seven, friends, and and where are they moving through life? And what does that mean for Sid? And where, in terms of where they're going, et cetera, so forth? Because otherwise, you are going back to, you know, a serialized book in which the comfort is no one ever changes you know we know that this will be this person and this is where they'll be and this is what they'll do and there's comfort in that but that's not what i'm writing
0: well i definitely flavored that question uh with my own personal bias although there is absolutely nothing wrong with recurring uh comfort reading uh where it's this character will always be learning some variation of the same lesson doing some variation of the same things i like that it's nice it's very comfortable. Uh, it's just not something that I've yet managed to tackle. Maybe I will <laughs> just as of now, not, not yet. So uh, for folks that, that uh, haven't just read on uh, a LARP, uh, if you would, because I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies, uh, especially if, since I'm talking to you and you're right here and could do a better job of it, uh, would you give esteemed audience kind of an overview uh, of the series?
1: well this as we we're talking about this series is Sid Rubin is the lead of the series um, and she has a group of friends it's a, they are in their senior year in high school she's a group of friends they are Jimmy Imani Vikram and Ari and then the occasional people that have come to populate the world over time it, but that's where it begins and it begins on a sort of chance mystery these are these are five children who are at an elite public school in New York and um, they are incredibly bright kids. I wanted to do a story where the kids are incredibly bright. They're not, they come from families, you know, they have their problems, they have this, but they all have families, they have homes. This is not a, this is, Sid, for those who are who do not know this, is an out lesbian. She's not coming out. There's no, these are just a group of five friends who fall into a mystery. And uh, the mystery, eventually, as it turns out, Sid looks at the woman in the paper, and she looks at the outfit the woman's wearing. There's a photo of this this person who's been discovered in the streets of New York, and says, "Oh, she was larping." And that is what, be, and that is what begins the journey into the world of mysteries. Is she's trying to tell the cops that they the the officer at this police station that they are at for a school function. As you can see, I do a rotten job of summarizing my own books. Thank you very much. They are, they are there for for a school function and she says they were larping and the officer says in over time what was what were you talking about and of course once they know there's interest they're five kids they need to go they need to find their answer for themselves and that's how they fall into it and then as the series grows it grows through different adventures that are all as i like to say zero-sum game takes place in the in the internet gaming world and then say her name has to do with two different worlds and, and a lot to do with identity. I'm very proud of this book. Uh, it has to do with the, the historic slavery world in New York and also the deaf community. Just the current status of, of the deaf community as Sid gets a girlfriend who is from that community and what that means and, and how that works for her.
0: So okay, why I mean oh yeah you know, that, that was a great summary. You're, you're, you're doing fantastic. <laughs> People who haven't read who haven't read so are clicking on the buy button right now. It's it's already on there on its way to them. Um, it's uh, if if I started with the carousel, um, and then I read that, and I said, like, "Okay, well, this this is who Stephanie Duell is. I I I I I feel like I can expect her next book. Never in a million years am I imagining the next book is going to be on a LARP. Um, so, what was it that made you wanted to um, not to part completely, because obviously there's 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 still you still the same DNA in there. But what was it that made you that attracted you to? I've got to be in New York. I've got to do live action role playing games. I've got to do the deaf community. What brought you there?"
1: Uh, don't we all wonder about that muse um
0: <laughs> you'll know what i'm not volunteering to answer the question myself <laughs>
1: that is that's a you know it, it's an interesting question um carousel had flirted in my mind for a long time i had that opportunity and i took it and then i would say it, it, there are five years between the first book and the second book and that had to do with I went off to do a show, so I was kind of busy. But also, I just didn't know what I wanted to write next. The Carousel is a very um, emotional book. And, and it was, so I didn't like have any interest in sequeling that. It, it is a standalone. It was not something I was like. So I just didn't know really what I wanted to write next. And as you know from the process, it, it, you commit a lot of yourself every time you sit down. So I wasn't really sure what it was. And I would think of an idea and I would think, eh. And then I kind of knew that I really wanted to do something in the young adult world. I think some of the writing going on in the young adult world is, is extraordinary. Um, I remember reading Ready Player One and just, and, and just thinking, wow, I wish I'd written that book. That book is so cool, you know, and and different things. That would be Harry amazing
0: Potter. on film or TV. You should definitely get the rights to that if it, if they're available. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, you know. I remember reading Harry Potter and, and and the transformational abilities of the of of J.K. Rowling. I, I, I can't say enough. I mean, let me just fangirl it. Um, uh,
0: well, we all, um, I'm po- for those of you listening. I'm pointing to my Harry Potter action figures above. We we all we're all there.
1: <laughs> so. You know, I, I look at all, and and so I kind of really was drawn to this idea. And then I would think of something and say, you know, oh, this person did this and they did this better than I probably will. And, you know, because you're looking for something that, that uniquely belongs to you. It doesn't mean somebody else hasn't written a young adult mystery wheel, just, it's just uniquely, it comes from you and belongs to you in a way that you can transform it and not be derivative. And one day I just had, and, and I do have to say, I believe that I owe this to a chance meeting at, um, at, well, the meeting was not by chance, but I went to Comic-Con in New York and being blown away by Comic-Con and then meeting with these two gentlemen that I'd been there to meet who were, doing, who were running this LARP that had been going on for, for years and was enormous. And just really saying I'm going to use that one day <laughs> and it just kind of and that's where it came from I mean like literally it became a series of events that fed into something that was mine to write and I knew that and that's when I sat down and wrote again
0: so what uh what's the way to phrase this badly probably but what's the uh, most stephanie dual aspect of the story do you feel
1: well, according to my brother, it's Sid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do we do we get some idea of who, who you were at 17 as we as we're reading on a LARP?
1: I, I like to say you get some idea of who I wish I was at 17 as you're reading on a LARP. And that's with her good parts and her bad parts. I mean, I think Sid is a a version of me in that in this sense of I wish I had aspects of Sid at 17 that I didn't have. So there is there is that part of, of Sid. But I think there is not a question that, there, that Sid and I are, are linked on certain levels.
0: Gotcha. So that would be why it might be comfortable for you to continue writing about her in some respects forever. Uh, let's see what happens to Sid <laughs> at age... I don't know, 57. Let's see what happens to.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think I'm really happy. with city 70.
0: <laughs> so let me ask you this, because the book is written um, very, as a first person, very uh, stream of consciousness, almost in, in, in parts. Um, and um, you are, uh, I assume we're not 17 at the time you wrote it. Um, so how did you get in the mindset of a seventeen year old? How do you keep that prose uh, in line with what we would expect uh, the the real Sid uh, to to say?
1: Well, I think uh, I think there are a few tricks you use for that. I mean, one of which is research. You go listen to seventeen year olds. But I also think that as writers, our job is, if you are writing contemporary realism, then your job might be to understand a, a very specific patois and write in that patois. I think for those of us who write more broadly, the job is to inhale the flavor of being 17, but not necessarily to write it in a manner in which, because by the time you for, again, for 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 people that are are listening to this and and are not familiar with the process that we know, from the time you finish your draft till the time the book comes to the market can can absolutely have an enormous gap. I mean, it can be a year, it can be eighteen months, you know, it can be two years, depending on if you're trying to shop it to traditional houses versus self-publishing, et cetera. So, so the more contemporary the language, the more you will date yourself incredibly quickly. <laughs> so because because it changes and kids will say, oh that's so old. You know. So you know, I think when I write, my job is to try to capture the emotions, the stresses of what it's like to be 17 in this in this world, much more so than trying to be the hippest 17-year-old in this world. And then part of it is you come up with your own language for it. You You know, Sid will talk about different things because she loves words. And so that's part of what I'm able to do is do a lot of wordplay because she loves words. And so Sid will have an entire stream of consciousness on a word and why she likes it. That has nothing to do with that word being 17-year-old hip. And on the other hand, you have to, again, because you're not trying to create the 1940s mystery that's been around forever, you're trying to create something that, that is of today you know, the other obligation in it is to say, okay, we have cell phones and we text and, you know, and, and, and we don't write the whole entire sentence out in text. We probably don't use too many capital letters when we're doing it, et cetera, so forth. So then you have to create and respect that part of what makes it modern and current. And that's, you know, that's a lot of hanging out with 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 people that live in that world. I believe you were telling me that, you know, one of your, smartest things when, when we first met, uh, you know, in exploring that world was going in and substitute teaching. Yes. Because you're immersed in hearing people and hearing the language. I, I did not do that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. But there are other places and, you know, you can sit in a mall and hear everything.
0: Where uh, where did you find your 17-year-olds to listen to?
1: Well, some of that came from when I started the series. I had younger nieces and nephews. They, they are sadly out growing 17 you know, and I say sadly because they
0: were very convenient. How um, rude of them! You've got books to write. Come on.
1: <laughs> that was my theory on it, um, and and then, but you go to malls and you hang out and you go to different different places where you will find them. And some of it is your seventeen-year-olds at a certain point become your seventeen-year-olds. So you want to stay current, and you you know the research in my books, you know. Um, Zero-sum game would not have been possible without the help of some very, very special people in the gaming community. And so some of that language comes from their help and their assistance and, you know, teaching you how to say things so you sound not just correct. But my biggest goal at the end of whatever I write is that I don't put anything in a book that can't be done. I don't make it up for plot value sake. It could be done. It might not be the way somebody would do it, but it could be done. And so I would write things and people would say, You can't you you can't do that. Like that technology doesn't exist. And then with that, you get their language and you get to build that into your vocabulary.
0: Gotcha. So, where are you finding the experts to talk to, and and and, and culminate to get to get this uh, research? This is a very ambitious trilogy. I, I, as I was thinking, oh my god, what what an amount of research must have been done! Um, so, yeah, how, where where do you do your research, and how much time do you spend with it?
1: Uh, I spend an exorbitant amount of time, and you do a lot of begging. You, you do a <laughs> tremendous amount of begging. Um, Tom Carbone at Florida State University made the mistake of answering an email that said, help, please. (laughs) (laughs) um, Just an extraordinary gentleman and and an extraordinary uh, um, amount of guidance and patience. But, you know, for example, on uh, Say Her Name, Craig O'Connor from the New York coroner's office, chief medical office, (laughs) <laughs> was was one of the people to to take a tremendous amount of time and then part part of what we were discussing I don't remember if it was earlier or in in this current conversation I literally had a series of events that were going to unfold and say her name I mean they were all here they you know in my in my mental outline I had an absolute set of events that would unfold. And I spoke to a gentleman named Dr. Michael Blakey, who again, you talk about the graciousness of people, as I was going through some of what I, my understanding of the African burial ground, and therefore what could be done in Seneca Village in New York, and my understanding of a very specific plot point. <laughs> Let's just say, he blew it to smithereens. Oh, it just said, no. What, what, what do you mean? What, what, what do you mean? And, you know, I provided was. Provided you with an opportunity
0: for a creative solution. <laughs> no, no,
1: here, 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 but, but what I had to do was literally say in the book, you think this is going to be this, don't you? Well, it's not, Sid. This is not going to be this because this one, you know. And I, I literally had to incorporate it because the information was so stunning to me because we all watch television and we all see certain things unfold and we all just assume you know and and, and that and this it revolves around i mean with no secret it revolves around dna we all assume we, we are all sort of savants about it on the surface and i did not understand something we're just going to say below the surface which i was enlightened on and i had to make a decision did i want to stay on the surface and cheat my way through the book or did I want to understand the lesson I was being handed and use that to inform the second half of the book? And that was what I chose. But it was a it was a let's just say we were in that latter third of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it, you know,
0: I, I don't well, want. To better, say- but I guess, better to get that news then. than after you finish it, it's it's out, and uh, people are leaving you uh, nasty reviews. <laughs> well, you
1: know, th- this was it. It was it was one of those things. So you know the but the kindness and generosity of people to help you be good is
0: amazing. So how? I mean, you know, the, the you said he's the chief coroner for New York. Um, I assume Not that's the chief a pretty-
1: he's in the chief medical examiner's office. He is in the coroner's division of New York.
0: Gotcha. I assume he's he's he's, he's got a full plate. Um, so when you reach out to somebody, do you say, "Hey, this is Stephanie Duell I will answer all your questions about Anthony and Michael Hall. Do you <laughs> say, "I will uh will will have lunch together"? How uh, how do you how do you how do you get him to come out and, and and be so um giving with this uh, information?
1: Mostly I just say, this is who I am and I'm writing this book and, 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 and I can I have five minutes of your time? And most people are very gracious about five minutes and I explain. And what I, what I say to them is, I don't need you to plot the book. But if I send you something, can you take a look at what I'm sending you? And one, tell me if I'm correct. And two, any thoughts that come, I'm completely open to hearing. And I think that that's the part that becomes, I will call it the partnership of that piece of of information in the book. Um, I am familiar with some of the libraries in New York, some of the New York public libraries. I I, I have a lot to say about the, you know, the lions in front of the the one that everyone knows. But in this particular case, I needed a different branch of the New York Public Library. And I called and I spoke with, Michelle Commander, because I had questions about the one of the the oh my gosh, I just lost the word, but one of the museum's collections that they have. And I, I had a question about how it would work. And mm-hmm. I couldn't go in because I wasn't in New York and I couldn't go in to ask it. So I, I called and Michelle Commander generously took the call, and then I said, well, I have you on the phone. Can I ask you a question? If you were to want to have a private conversation in the library, like where could you go? And she took me through the whole layout of the library. When I wrote on a LARP, which involves, you know, springboarding off the balcony in the library, I called the New York Public Library information and got on the phone and said, okay, this is what I'm trying to do, and I want to make sure that I'm looking at your site map correctly. And literally went from room to room. And the gentleman that was on the phone said, no, you can't get from that room to that room. You know, you know, I I told him what I was doing. I said, no, no. He said, what you're missing is. And so people are. But I think the again, I think the object is. I think most people. Like to help somebody's sincere journey. My advice to anybody who's going to try to duplicate that is do your work first. Their job isn't to give you a plot and their job isn't to. But if you get on the phone and you say, this is what I'm doing and can you help me with three minutes of your time? Most people will help you with three minutes of the, of, of your time. And if you're open to what they have to say, they will take you to the next person, even if not by name, they will say, this is the topic you need to go research and it's sort of how you build it. You know, you build it from person to person to person. And then in between the people, you know, is an immense amount of reading. When I did Say Her Name, which, as I mentioned, deals with, you know, the historic slave trade in New York. The amount I have learned about, you know, as I say, places like Seneca Village. I mean, you know, for all that I knew about from growing up in New York, I had no idea. And that was part of, my journey becomes part of their journey. They have no idea because I'm also learning it. And and so from person to person, people would say, did you read about this? Do you know about that? And I would say, gee, no, I don't. But I would go do that research. I did not ask them to give me that research. I would go do that research. And then if you have a question on it, somebody's absolutely happy to give you five minutes and answer it. They want you to be right. They want you to be good because you are reflecting what they do.
0: Plus, how exciting. I mean, how often do you get to answer uh, questions that specific and, and, and take part? I mean, everybody wants, to, everybody wants to write a book, even if they're vicariously writing it through you and, and helping out in some small way, right?
1: So it's, but it's you know, I, I got to speak to a woman who has been the Central Park historian for, you know, photographer and historian for, I think, 40 years now. Uh, but it might be 35. What an amazing job to have been the photographer of Central Park for all those years.
0: As I'm hearing you describe all of this effort you put into things, one I wonder, and this is a question that I'm I'm forever. Uh, wondering in the back of my mind is when you do that amount of research for something that you don't know, and you're literally talking to the person who might be the only reader that would know you're not right on that fact, um, is, it, is it the satisfaction of just knowing that you were correct, that you had it right uh, from the start? Uh, and then I'll wait to ask my second part of that.
1: I think, look, I think most writers are curious. So I think there's a joy in discovering things but I also think there's a real obligation. I think there is an obligation to do the work. I think when you read, and I know certainly I have, when you read a book where people do things for convenience, you are responsible for, in essence, perpetuating that myth. And so when somebody reads my book, I don't want somebody to dismiss it because it was convenient. Um, I want somebody to be able to say, you know, when when, when I wrote the carousel, because that's almost the easiest one in some ways, I literally learned everything that went into building a carousel. And then it becomes about modifying all of this research that you've done into the bare bones to seed what you're doing creatively and artistically so that somebody who's actually done this says, wow, they really did their work on this. But for somebody who's never done this, they can say, wow, this is really fascinating. And then you throw away everything else you learned because it doesn't, you know, the danger is always writing only to write down what you've learned. Mm, Yes. And so, you know, you sort of, I threw out a chunk of the carousel, which had to do with something called rounding boards, because it was way late in the book. And I realized that the only reason that this existed in the book was so that I could prove that I learned something about rounding boards. And like, <laughs> like, it had no plot perspective anymore. Now it was just about, look, let's do rounding boards, and, you know, and out outline 10 pages of the book.
0: <laughs> and I'm asking you these questions about research facetiously a little bit because I've gone to a hospital and uh, stopped people and said, hey, if zombies came here, What would be the best way to kill them? What would be the best way to get away from them? Show me your escape plan. What would you do? Um, So I I absolutely get it. But to to hear you talk about this, it sounds like you've got nothing but time. And I know that can't be true because I I imagine uh, just your television duties alone on top of everything else you have in your life uh, must take an incredible amount of time. So when do you... Is this uh, kind of like what you do for pleasure, uh, going out and doing this research and, and obtaining this information? Or do you also have, um, I assume you have hobbies and interest and in things that also cut into your time? Yeah, how do you make time to, to do all of this research?
1: Well, I think I, <laughs> it's always interesting, isn't it? Um, it cuts probably into the time that would be my reading time. You know, I don't read or watch as much television, certainly, as I used to, because life does get busier. And, and where do you find it from? You know, you, you kind of have this handful of shows that, you know, you either want to see, you know, the occasional binge. I mean, I just watched uh, recently the, the show Unbelievable that came out, and I was like, and it was Unbelievable, and I wound up just, you know, glued, so other things go out the window so you can do it. Um so i think it comes into some of that time without question you 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 trade off a few things there i was a voracious reader and you know sadly cannot read anywhere near as much as i used to because the the uh, because there is there are only so many hours in a day it is finite i also think though that the advantage i have i'm i'm going to say in in sort of not outlining and and and, and living internally with a lot of things is, you know, you think about it when you're doing other things that you do. I think about it when I I walk and I bike. So, you know, I can be on a bike ride and thinking about working this out. The research for me, though, is part of the joy of what I do. So you just make time.
0: You just love the glory of knowledge. Am I hearing that right?
1: You know, no, because that sounds really hoity-toity. And it's not that. I think it's that... Because other things I could actually really care less about. <laughs> the <laughs> that it's, the, it's, the, it's the hunt for the morsel. I mean, there's probably a reason why I write mysteries. It's the hunt for the morsel, the thing that's going to make this story. I don't know if urgent's the right word. I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's not something that necessarily any reader will know but me. But it's the hunt for that morsel, that that moment of saying, "Oh, that that's sweet, that's good," and and I think that's what it is. I, I don't think it's about you know because knowledge in general, you know, I, I, I somebody once accused me of having a deplorable lack of curiosity actually, because so they would be like, "Isn't this great?" And I'm like, "Eh, whatever." <laughs> but you know, you get on the hunt like this is the story you're going to be telling. You're on that hunt, and all of that knowledge has has a place in a home and. And and you're looking for that morsel. And I think that it's just, it's fun.
0: That makes sense to me. I absolutely identify with that. That that desire to know about the one thing I really want to know about and other stuff. Maybe there'll be a a story involved at some point that I want to know about that, but not right now. Right.
1: (laughs) It's kind of like when you're in there and you're bugging people about something, you're looking for that one thing in the zombie culture that's going to say, aha, now I have a smart zombie.
0: The other thing that uh, bugs me uh, about myself uh, is this obsessive tunnel vision I get sometimes where I really want to know everything until the book's done, and then I kind of set everything I knew not away forever, but it's, it's not at the front of my mind. Uh, so, like, if you talked to me while I was writing about the Book of David, I would have sounded like Richard Dolan, my favorite UFO historian, going on and on about flying saucers, and I didn't, at that time, know who the name of my senator was, but by God, I could tell you uh, who had seen what UFO and when and where in, in, in the area. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you finish the book. It's not necessarily practical to walk around with all of that in information all of the time because really how often does it come up except when I ask people about flying saucers so you just set that aside and now okay what's the next thing what can I learn next and I learn everything that there is to possibly uh to satisfy me probably not everything that there is to know to where I can give myself an unofficial Rob Masters uh certificate of knowledge in that thing I know what I need to know to get the story done and to feel like I've done it uh but then it's on to something else that I, I wonder is that it's very useful for writing and for for getting stories done, but also how some somewhat impractical because there is lots of other information that while I'm while I'm tunnel visioning I could be taking in and it, it, my brain just hasn't been that way. Do you find that to be true, or am I just rambling?
1: <laughs> I'm fascinated because of course it is so true. Um, you know. Uh, uh, Friend of mine once said you know somebody asked her how she could know the words to every show tune ever written she said it's where math should be and and i and i love that answer um i think that, i think it's true i think we have this little you know the, this little storage vat for this book and then we fill it to capacity and hopefully the book is out by that point and you know and it needs to be cleared for the next adventure um i don't think I think the nice part is, again, it becomes part of you. I mean, I could still probably discuss a carousel in more detail than people would need to know. But in general, I don't need to know that information. And, uh, you know, but life is always full circle. And at the oddest times, it will come back and be useful for different things. But it is true. We spend a tremendous amount of time. You know, this is the plot. This is what we need. This is what we need. And then we're done. And, you know, you don't need to know it anymore. But if we've done it well, the key parts of it are all incorporated in our work. And so there's a piece of it that always stays with you.
0: Oh, yeah, the best parts—the what you polished away everything. And this is the the gem that I've saved just for me and to share with the world. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So it, you, know, <laughs> you don't lose it. It just, you know, it's time for a new tunnel vision.
0: <laughs> the other thing that uh, amuses me sometimes just about uh, i, I I've got an unattributed quote that I throw out there a lot because I can't remember who said it, but uh, half of what goes on in a writer's mind is none of their business. Um, uh, but I do find that um, – oh, where was I going with that? Oh, that um, sometimes I don't really know how I feel about a subject until I've seen my characters grapple with it and then – oh. That must be how I feel, or at least in that particular set of circumstances, that's how it would feel. So sometimes somebody comes to me and says, well, how do you feel about this highly charged issue one way or the other? And I haven't really done the research. I can give an off the cuff opinion, but usually I don't uh, because I don't know until I write that story. And I really dig it. Oh, there's that truth I was looking for. Well,
1: I think I, I think look, I think that's true. I think that's a true statement on many levels about about what we do. It's not just that. Sometimes I don't even know who's going to be in the book. You know, in other uh, other words, Sid has... When I began the book, in my mind, on LARP, Sid had two best friends, Jimmy and Imani. Apparently she has four. Ari and Vikram are in there. And if you actually read the book, it's like Ari comes in and they're not that close and everything. But apparently there were four. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and 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 they needed to be for different reasons, but I didn't quite know that yet. I mean, I think it's not just about opinions; it's about how we're going to, or truths, I guess, would be really be the answer, um, and about how we're going to get to those truths, and and how. We journey to those truths, and I think we get surprised by them. I think that's the part people don't understand. It's not that they're not a part of us. I mean, you know, you know, people will say, "Oh, my characters talk without me." Well, they don't talk without me. I mean, I'm, I'm there. I'm present. But when you sort of let them ping around and you're sort of in conversation, you will find truths you didn't know were coming. And I think it's all. I think it's fascinating. You know that. Oh wow! There really is this insecurity here, or re- there really is that that judgment, or there's this flaw, or there's this strength, and you didn't know that it was coming until it's there. And it's not as simple as saying, "Oh well, yeah, of course you had that strength because of course she was going to be able to scale twelve buildings within a single bound." Of course. It's like- but it's like no why could she and and how could she and where did that come from and you know and you know as clear as day she's going to do that scale but the question is how and why and all of those things and in finding that I think we find the truth
0: that makes sense to me that. That adds up and checks out. (laughs) I do find the weakness of mine is I tend to engage in a little bit of magical thinking. And what that is, is just I don't have time to really examine that now. So we'll just chalk that little bit up to magic until I can look at it later. (laughs) But that absolutely makes sense. But when you you
1: go back and you're, even if not then, when you're editing, if it was magic, you're going to change it. Of course. Because <laughs> it won't, you know, it won't, stand, it won't stand up on the page. It's like, like suddenly you'll be looking at it going, did I really write that? Hmm, wonder what I was thinking. Oh, right, that was there. I wasn't thinking. I remember that day now
0: when uh, when do you get to the point of actual pacing because you know you, you've described this process that's six months of laying your foundation getting the first part of the book down organizing things and then rapid um uh, um sprint to the finish which does just track with the experience of, of reading the novel all the pieces oh my god oh my god um but what um what when do you go back through and start to really worrying about pace? Is that a constant worry from the start, or you just get the thing down and then go back and revise for it?
1: I have an editor, my erstwhile, uh, my erstwhile trusted friend and editor, Faye Jacobs, and I hand her the book. She's the only person who sees the book in 30 pages, 40 pages, whatever it is, in the beginning, and I ask her to edit the beginning of the book. And then I go back. So, and I mean, I will only be 50 pages in when I ask her to look at 40. You know, I I write the front of the book and then I want the front of the book on a first pass edit, because I may go back and change it anyway, but on a first pass edit to make sure all of my pacing is is correct, that I'm picking the book up where I need to pick up the, to pick the book up from, and that the book is holding its own.
0: So how much time do you spend in revision? I mean, if you're talking six what six to, uh, months to a year to write the thing, how much time are you spending in revision and what does your revision process look like?
1: Um, <sighs> I revise every time I sit down. I mean, the hardest thing for me is to sort of sign off in sections and say, okay, we can go forward now. Um, what I will say is, my revisions tend to be quick. I'm a very lean writer. I don't, I don't use. So because I, 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 I will send it to my editor at 40, I might send it again at you know 100 pages just for the heck of it and say, take a look and make sure that, you know, and again, because they're all sort of different. and, and that's the only way I can explain it because they're all different you know there are places where i feel like you know what i want to look at this now um from when i finish a book i you know i send it off my my revisions are my turnaround is very fast on revisions i don't tend to argue and i think again this is where my strength of working in television comes back uh, or or the background of television becomes one of my strengths I, I suppose would be the right way to say that is I'm very accustomed to notes. I've given a lot of notes in my career and I believe in the value of notes. So when I go back into the editorial process I'm not looking to argue for the most part. I of course know that every note they give is wrong but I'll do them anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: Because my genius was so there, (laughs) I didn't even have a note. But
0: I don't like taking divine dictation. I wrote it right the first time. Of course,
1: exactly. So I tend to go back, and I tend to be very fast on revisions because I'll sit down. The harder ones are where you get into something where it's like you can't make this leap. You need to, you know. But I am, and I think one of the advantages being a page one forward writer is that because I've looked at it already twice before I got to the end, I tend to be in pretty decent shape. And then, as I say, and and on things like, I think we all have, um, I'll call them writer ticks. I had to learn that I used the word that too many times. So now every time I write the word that, I check it in the moment. Um, I
0: have a vendetta against the word that, yes. <laughs> I understand.
1: So, you know, so I... Being on the fourth book, you tend to correct those. I just think if you're open to hearing the notes and working the notes, your editorial goes pretty smoothly and pretty quickly. So my editorial is really how fast can they get me their notes and I will turn it back around.
0: So aside from your editor, um, who do you trust to give you notes? Do you have critique partners? Who are you employing?
1: My editors. I have I have multiple editors, actually. Um, and uh, my publisher. And my partner will read it. Um, there are a few people, but really, no. I mean, I write the story I want to write. And then what I want back from that story is what's wrong with that story. You know, obviously, as we all do. Um, and then I have...
0: Well, a little compliment along the way wouldn't hurt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, no. no, no, no. We've had that battle, which is first tell me it's brilliant, then tell me where I need to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, start with, oh, my God, I've never read anything this good. And I have a wee little thought. You know? <laughs> <laughs> But that for me is I'm I'm actually, you know, and again, part of that is the luxury of, you know, you at this point know your series. So you're looking at people to say, yes, it's, it paces the same. You didn't go off the rails. You didn't do this. Is it, does it have something to say? Is it emotional or exciting or this or that? And beyond that, so I, I don't keep a beta reading group.
0: Okay. So you don't, like, have, this is my trusted 17-year-old who always checks <laughs> to go through and, and make sure... Well,
1: they aged out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and then... Um,
1: but, for example, though, your... in, in, oh, sorry. in this particular book, Say Her Name, mm-hmm. I do have a not-quite-17-year-old, but a young teenager, because he was also... Joe Sarcini, wonderful, wonderful young man, who was also my guide to the deaf world for questions that I had. How would I sign something contemporary? What would I say in response to this? You know, so, you know, there, and and he and he sent me back a note once with a question. I was like, hmm, good question. And a question from a more 17-year-old point of view. And I was like, it's actually a great question. So I, you know, so it's not that it doesn't get incorporated, it just doesn't get incorporated by a beta reading group.
0: Gotcha. Oh, you know, you're know you getting the information where you need it. You've just established your way of, of how you're going to go about it. Um, but I wanted to ask you about uh, having given notes to, to so many writers over the years and, and inevitably probably have broken some hearts uh, along the way. That's the, I assume that goes with the territory. Um, are there excuses, things you've heard writers say to you that you now have to rule out and be harder on yourself uh, because you've heard those from other writers and, and you can't take that from from yourself? Or are you a little bit Easier on you than you maybe would be to somebody that's brought you a, a script that's not quite there. Mm,
1: no, mm, I'm just trying to think of the best way to, to answer this. I think the biggest thing that you have to know is the difference between different isn't better. Difference just different, and find. I always tell people take the notes. Take the notes if. If you are dealing with people whose job is to make you better at your craft, and you believe that, take the note. But the issue isn't always about taking the note, the issue is about really understanding the note. And Because sometimes somebody will say, well, I think the reaction's wrong. And the real note isn't that the reaction is wrong, the real note is that you didn't set up for the reaction correctly. I got you. So you have two different ways of looking at that note. So if that reaction is correct, then why didn't they feel that way? Like if that's the reaction you want on the page, you want somebody to say, oh my God, then what didn't you set up to warrant that reaction?
0: That makes perfect sense.
1: So, you know, it's those kinds of things. Um, So no, I think My note, you know, and the other thing I used to say to writers all the time, if you're only going to have one great idea, don't share it with me. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of nothing, you know, you are not going to have something that is so sacred that no one's ever thought of it. It's going to be about your execution of that.
0: I am officially stealing that. And I'm going to pass it off as mine. That is brilliant. If you're only going to have one great idea, don't share it with me. Oh, I love it.
1: <laughs> no. So I'm like, you know, so let's get down to brass tacks. You know, what are we writing? What are we doing? And I just think you have to say, okay, if they're not getting something, what didn't I put down? Like, you don't have to agree with it. You have to say, and again, this comes only. And I, I put this because people will have their best friend read something. And the minute you ask for an opinion, you're gonna get it. And, you know, oh, well, I didn't really like Susie because Susie wasn't very nice. It's like, okay, but maybe Susie's job isn't to be very nice. The minute you sit down though, and you're sitting down with people who are fellow writers, they're agents, they're editors, they are in some way qualified along with your best friend. And they're all saying Susie's not very nice. You have to look at that and say, OK, what is it that I'm not delivering? OK, and it may be that you're not delivering that Susie's job is not to be very nice. You know, what What are you not delivering? You have to take notes. Or not grow And in which case, you know, you should, you know, you should make that book for your mom.
0: <laughs> she's she's gonna, not going to read it, but she'll tell you she loves it. <laughs> but she's
1: going to love it.
0: <laughs> she'll never confess that she just skimmed parts of the end there but by god she loves you so she loves it sure <laughs> and uh oh i had a question for you this has right about oh i wanted to ask you about uh tv possibilities or film possibilities for sydney did you at any point ever envision this as a tv series or was this always going to be a young adult novel and if so why
1: it was always going to be a young adult novel for me. Do I have aspirations of a television series? Well, yes.
0: I mean, I assume <laughs> you know people. <laughs> I assume if anybody could be in a position to maybe get the the wheels turning on that.
1: So, so there's a there's a definitive yes answer to that. Um, but there's also a for me, Sid's novel. I think the different. You know, I, I you know somebody asked me if I would do the adaptation. I said. If I had to, I would. I said, but not preferably. I think there are better screenwriters than I will ever do for adapting that. You know, and, and I think it's about skill sets. I think there are people who I have huge admiration for and and they will bring things that I will not bring as well because if I would have brought it as well, I would have written the screenplay and not bothered with the novel. You know, they're different, you know, they're different mediums. Um so that for me is i i have that for me is is sort of where that landed, but yes, I have aspirations of it certainly becoming a, a, preferably a series yes,
0: but not by you well what would that experience be would you would you be able to sit down and enjoy it or would you uh sit well, back would, and say oh, this is what i would have done
1: i would have produced i will produce it I just, I just, I just, (laughs) I do. You know, show running is a really, as I say, a really challenging and and unique craft. And I think you should know what is probably not your best bet in life. And at this point in my life, you know, to be able to have the ability to turn out seasonal arcs, followed by thumbnails, followed by outlines, followed by beat sheets, followed by you know. I didn't grow up writing that, and I think that that would be not a smart use of my skill set. But I think it is a brilliant use of people who I really respect, and so I would. And, and I think that a collaboration for Sid will only make her stronger. So I, I would love to be part of it, just not in not not the writer
0: no, I'm curious. Uh, I've got a few questions uh, about television. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but I'd, I'd, I'd be missing a huge opportunity if I didn't ask a couple of things. One thing I wonder about uh, is my mother is a dental hygienist. So every room we ever go into, uh, she'll tell me about people's teeth because that's what she's looking at while we're talking, well, when, t- when she's talking to them. So I wonder if you sit back and you're watching just a TV show or something else, uh, whereas me, uh, who, who, who's not doing that. I can watch it and ah, suspend my disbelief. The acting doesn't seem that great, but it's fine. Can you do that? Or are you sitting back like, I know that person, they're not heroic. That's, <laughs> this is nonsense. I know that that's uh, a cheap set and I'm, and I'm taken out of it. Are, are, do you feel like it's work when you're watching or do, are you still able to be captivated and take it away? Oh,
1: this is such a tough question because the answer is the both. When it's good, you're absolutely captivated and taken away. When you're slightly bored, it's bad because this is exactly what you start to do. You start to kind of, you know, and, and and where it's compassionate is an understanding of something where you'll say, wow, that was considering the limitations of that budget. What they were able to do is remarkable. So, you know, it, it falls into different categories, but you shouldn't necessarily know somebody's budget. You know, that's the, you know, on the other hand, there are there are shows that you watch and you just, the drama is, or the comedy, I mean, you know, whatever the, you know, other times, by the way, it, sorry, the inverse of that would be to say, you know, you look at Game of Thrones and say, wow, I wish I had that kind of money on a show I made, <laughs> you know, so it goes both ways. And the, and the money was on screen, you can't say it wasn't. Um, but there's also those moments of just, no, you're transported. You are watching something just like anybody else and just saying, wow, that's really just good. And I think that happens more in drama, because if, it, if you get pulled into it, everything else fades out. Whereas, you know, in effects movies, you still see effects. You know, I mean, I think in other places you see other things. But in pure drama, you know, when you're watching people hold the screen on you in that manner, and I, I think that you lose, you, you, you stop writing the script for them and you just sit in that pocket.
0: I get. Uh tired with effects movies sometimes like i've lost my my taste for transformers i've, I've seen all the transformers movies i'm ever going to see i'm aware they've continued making them i'm, I'm, I'm set because I'm, I'm very conscious that i'm watching so i'm watching a, a, a high-tech version of roger rabbit i'm watching somebody walk around in a suit and nothing around them is real uh, and if it's batman v superman where i'm very aware that that's the truth but i still love batman enough that i'm going to stay with it then that's fine um but i i i I think we were talking about Aquaman. Uh, I don't remember if we were talking about that before the show, or, or I think it was before the show, and I was making that comment about I can't really watch that movie again. I, I saw it once in the theater, and I'm I'm good. And Jason Momoa looked amazing. It was fun. Um, but when uh, everybody's hair is uh, computer cgi and they're all obviously on wire, there's a part of it that's just like, that, okay, it's, it's fun. I'm having a good time. But I know none of you are underwater. <laughs> it's, it's very I off-putting.
1: But I have to say, I think, you know, I I am still a go to the movie theater for popcorn movies person. You know, I still like to go in and watch, you know, a big Avengers movie on the screen and have a good time. I don't know that I'd want to watch them on the small screen, though, for some of the reasons you're talking about. It becomes too easy in your living room to sort of pick them apart. But for the two hours uh, with, my big, with my big thing of popcorn, with my big thing of unhealthy popcorn at the movie theater, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly happy in the seat watching things go boom. And I just give that over to them. I'm like, you know, they're just fun. There, there's nothing. There, there is no there there. And you you just kind of have to for me enjoy the moment of it.
0: Even when you're watching, you know, The Dark Knight and you're like, Oh my God, Heath Ledger is amazing. Christian Bale is really doing this Batman thing to his best. Like, that's Anthony Michael Hall. I know him. He that's not how he is when he's nervous and, and terrified by the Joker. Does it doesn't take you out something like that. Well,
1: you know, that's you know, then you get into then you get into a sort of what I would call a deeply personal place because you know, there 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 are actors and 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 you know, after you've worked with people, I think across the board. I mean, I was I turned on the TV one night, there was a, an episode of NCIS, and I'm like, Oh my goodness, it's Emily Rose. And I went and I got my phone and I took a photo and then I texted Emily and I said, Look where I just found, you know. Um, so I think anytime you know people personally, your reaction's slightly different. I, I don't think you can stop that.
0: That makes sense another dumb question about being a producer and then and then I'm gonna ask you about Stephen King and we'll move on because I I wanna ask you right early questions. I know that's that's what we're here to talk about, but I I I have this assumption. I like having my assumptions challenged. So I assume that when you're a producer with your IMBD page, uh, with, with with people looking at you, I assume with stars in their eyes, because I, I had some friends that went off to Hollywood uh, to be actors. Some had some success, some not. At least one is just gay now and happy. Like, yes, get out of the small Indiana town. Go be <laughs> happy. Um, but... Uh, uh, I assume that because I've seen literary agents at, at, at conferences and nobody is more popular at a writer's conference than a literary agent or an editor. Everybody wants to be their friend. Hello, can I can I get you something to drink? Can, you need a shoulder massage. Let me just slip my, my manuscript under the bathroom stall uh, so you can take a look at that. Those are terrible things that, that writers do. Um, is there some of that when you're walking around at a, at a Hollywood event or something where people come up and they want to pitch you their, their ideas for shows or things?
1: Not as much as as you would think. I, I think the difference is I, I'm very proud of my career, of my career. Um, but there, in Hollywood, there, is, there are the star people. I think, I, I am sure that Mr. Spielberg cannot walk down the street without somebody trying to hand him a script. Uh, I would say the same thing is probably true for, you know, Ron Howard. And you, you can pick a handful of, of, those, of those players out. I think for those of us that are I'll call us in the lesser known ranks where we, we have careers, we have names, we we have all of that, um, but nonetheless, we don't resonate in that manner. I think there's less of that for us. There just is. People don't people don't pay attention because they're chasing the shiny object, and we're not shiny. And really? I think that, yeah, and I, by the way, I think that's a very good thing. I don't, I don't find that. I, I don't say that in a in a bad thing, but that's exactly it. You go to a lit conference, and people aren't looking for the person who's made some television. They're trying to get to that guest literary agent because that's the shiny object that's there. There may be four other literary agents in the room, but they're not they're not digging down for that. So they're chasing the one that they know. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on at conferences across the board. Now, when I sat at a studio job, I was chased a lot more.
0: <laughs> Does that get you to a point where you learn to um, uh, to see through people a little better and like is this person are they genuinely being friendly, or is this a, hey, let me give you a shoulder rub so i can I can uh, throw my pitch in there at some point. do you do you develop a sharp eye for that?
1: You know, I don't distinguish between the two. the you know the the when I go to a conference, you know you know because that's sort of where we, we we put this question when I go to a conference I'm there to be at a conference I'm there to hopefully impress people with my work and if people are trying to impress me with their work good for them I there there is no there's no line I think I think one of the things you have to know is who are your friends who are your colleagues and who are conference people And I think that there, I think they're just layers and there, I I don't think, I think there are ugly people that can exist in all of those categories. (laughs) Surprise. Um, Yes, we know you thought they were your friend, but you were friends till the end and that was the end. Um, So I think that there's, I think there are all of those things that happen, but I think in general, you know, your job is not to say, wow, I sat down with this person at this writers' conference, so now we're besties. Like, I think you have to have managed expectations, but you go. I mean, I, I, I was at Batracon and I met a gentleman. Um, his name is Christopher Skorsky, and he runs Bolo Books. And I was fortunate enough to have a conversation. He's It's an extraordinary review site for mystery writers. I mean, I cannot say enough about he and Joanne Love, who who runs Drew's Books, Drew's Books Musings, these are two websites that do this much like you for the love of a genre to help promote people. I mean, you, you can't ask for better people. I am grateful to call them both colleagues. You know, perhaps one day I'll call them both friends, but I'm grateful to call them both colleagues to know them, to, to be able to respect them, to be able to tout them. You and I have met, I I am grateful to call you a colleague and hopefully one day to call you a friend. I, I think people have fake expectations. I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody trying to put their best foot forward. It's simply the 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 defining line is being able to understand when somebody is saying to you, now is not a good time. Or thank you, but this isn't why I can help you. You know, those kinds of things. And and part of your job is learning. It's not so much to take no for an answer, but it's learning to read a room. It's learning to understand. Don't cut this conversation off because you want to say, I have a book. Let that conversation finish. And I think a lot of people just don't, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to go out there. And it's like, okay, but even in boldness, there are manners.
0: There should be anyway. (laughs) When, it, when, it, when it's done, right? Uh, just curious. Um, When am I going to have this op- opportunity to ask that question again? And when am I going to have another opportunity to ask about Stephen King with who I assume must be, you must at least like the fella. <laughs> you, you must enjoy his writing on some level, I assume, at this point.
1: You know, I, I would be hard-pressed. I, I think there are two people that I would call... You know, I'm just going to call them bona fide writing geniuses. I mean, you know, that are that are active and working. The aforementioned J.K. Rowling. Absolutely. Mr. Stephen King. And part of it is it's not just that they're prolific and it's not just that they've taken a genre and been brilliant in it consistently. It's that they've taken more than one genre and been brilliant in them consistently I mean I, I aside from dead zone and, and haven for those people who don't know was based on the Colorado kid which was a short story of or a novella actually uh, of mr King's um aside from that Shawshank Redemption is just one of my favorite pieces of art you know and then stand by me like you, you don't even think about the 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 scope and the breadth of the work he's delivered you know because everybody kind of has their own favorite Stephen King moments and 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 then you start to look and there is to me not a there there are there are two I will call them horror genre movies that live on for me the birds because every time I pass a wire and all those birds are lined up on them I'm right back waiting for Suzanne Plachette CGI attack from those birds. the Bad CGI of its day. But in its day and time, I mean, it was extraordinary. But but the whole, the birds on the wire just all laying in wait, you know, comes right back. And the other one is it. Childhood fears of it and everything. I'm so sorry I didn't get to do that next remake. Are we talking
0: about the Tim Curry version or just your version in your mind from the well, book?
1: For me, for me, it was a combination of the book which I read and then the Tim Curry version. And I don't like a clown. And if I didn't like a clown beforehand, I will never like a clown in my life. You know, <laughs> I see clowns, and that's what I see. So I just, I just think what an extraordinary, what an extraordinary talent to be alive, and and to be our contemporary. I think it's remarkable.
0: Uh, Mr. King, if you're listening, you're you're welcome to come on the show anytime. That's uh, that's a that's a dream of mine. Uh, there would be uh, two hours of me stammering, <laughs> but I, I because I am such a big Stevie King fan, I'm gonna say this. You are not gonna endorse this view because I know that you know people in the business. I'm going to say that the newest version of uh, Pet Cemetery drove me up the wall, and it drove me up a wall because the problems that are in that story were there on the script page. Like, who greenlit this? Who was it that wrote this and thought, you know who's a better writer than Stephen King? This guy. I'm going to change it around and make it the way he should have done. And again, you are not endorsing this because you're probably best friends with the person who wrote it. This is something I, Robert Kent, am saying. Um, The new Pet Cemetery, not good. Thumbs down. And there have been a number of really bad Stephen King adaptations over the year, and it just—it always strikes me because they, they, they he gets a lot of at-bats uh, for films and TV shows, and it seems like there's just a a, a small sliver of of those where they're really able to honor the book. Or in the case of The Shawshank Redemption, I would argue that would—I think the film is actually better than the original uh, story it's based on. Uh, and the Dead Zone was tremendous. Haven is tremendous. These are high-quality adaptations. So what is the secret to ad- at adapting a Stephen King story successfully?
1: Oh, gee, no pressure on that question.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. But if anyone would know, I assume it's got to be you.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, I honestly couldn't answer that. I, I would go back to showrunners. I would go back to who is the writer. I would also go back, though, to the studio, I, I think a lot of it has to do with, especially if you're going to create a series, you know, you know, you've got a, a, a novella that you're going to take to a series. I think it comes back to finding the core elements and then getting everybody to say, yes, this is the show. Haven is a show that I would argue got better and better. I think, you know, it, some of it, when you do a one-off movie, you have source material and you, Rise and fall. I mean that's it. This is this is it. So Shawshank Redemption being a perfect example of wow, talk about rising. You know, but not everybody, you know, not everybody hits the same heights. You know, so, so and, and some of that comes from, yes, people wanting to change things, people, you know, I think I think adapting is very hard across the board. For anybody who's doing a one-off in almost any, in almost any, the number of times people have gone to the movies in any genre and said, eh, I kind of like the book better, et cetera, so forth. is legendary. But I think when it's good, it's really good. The other side of it is when you do a series, you also have the ability to grow that series, to say, this is where we started from and this is fabulous. But we can grow this in little ways that don't take everybody away from it, but can get darker and more interesting and a little bit more, a little edgier here and a little lighter there. And and, and you don't have that same anger as long as you stay sort of true to the genre.
0: That makes sense.
1: You know as so long
0: as you're within those specific guidelines you can avoid the angry fanboys like me raging at the screen why why did you change if pet it
1: pet cemetery is a one-off movie you have a lot of things to say about how it's done if pet cemetery is taken out and spun over five years you're much more agreeable with the thought that we're adding in a character that never was in the book and we're doing this and we're doing that because now we're creating something where we're where it's an homage to the original material but it's not an exact Replica of the original material.
0: And I can hear the Jim Butcher fans screaming, ask her about the Dresden files. No, I'm not gonna. What, uh, What? Uh, if there was one more adaptation that you could do for Stevie King and you could take his library and pick out anything you wanted, what would be the, the prize that you'd want to select from there?
1: I would, it's a very hard thing for me to answer because I would like to do more Haven. I I think Haven is a show that has more chops to give, and, and so I would actually like to go back and do more Haven. That would be my dream. And of
0: I course love, it has the, the best uh, dispatch radio voice ever.
1: <laughs> Hello. Hello. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Well, I would we, like we, to do? Haven we... from
1: Laverne's point of view.
0: <laughs> now we're talking... That's gotta be worth at least another five seasons right there. Right there. Right there. <laughs> let me uh, pivot back a little bit to books and then we'll start thinking about winding this thing down before I take up your, your entire boarding. Uh, but I did want to ask you uh, about marketing because I assume that you've got all sorts of know-how on uh, marketing and, 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 and uh, promoting uh, that you would have gained from from various uh, uh, roles that you've held. So what have you found to be the most successful marketing for your books? Where are you getting the most bang for your book?
1: As soon as I find that, I'm going to share that loudly. Um, you know, what I found what what I found challenging is that actually moving in, in into books was very surprising to me, is just how hard it is. That how few outlets remain accessible to those of us that don't have, I will call them big presses. And even the big presses struggle to get a certain amount of this out. You know, everybody says, well, you know, what would be your dream? Well, you know, my dream would be to be reviewed in some of the publications that don't really give time and energy to small press books. And that's a really hard thing. And, and I did not know how challenging that would be. It is very challenging. So I don't have, I think, a a best answer to this. And that for me has been what I will call the frustrating part. I think what's great is that within communities, you find some terrific peer support from the, you know, diverse voices, own voices, LGBTQ plus community, from the mystery community, from the YA community. You'll find a lot of people that are, are are willing to, that they give up their time and then they're willing to help you. You know, you're a perfect example of that, as I mentioned some people earlier. Um, you know, Tara Scott out of the LGBTQ plus community has been, you know, an extraordinary uh, champion of Sid from An-A-Larp. and and so many, you know, terrifically wonderful, individual people, that, but those people are sort of upholding a banner for places that don't give you that same access, you know, the the people that review for O Magazine, and the pe- which I would die to be reviewed by.
0: Let um, us manifest I, that into the universe now. Right. And I Listen think, to us, O Magazine, review this book.
1: You know, I think Say Her Name would be a wonderful book for them to review. Um... You know there are there are all sorts of places. The New York Times, um, of course. I I will say I I received a wonderful note back from somebody I queried at one point, and and who said you know we just don't do YA here. It's not you know that's a, you know we have, we have to sort of draw a box on one person, In our boxes we don't really cover YA, you know. So it's just you know the my only advice is just keep asking. You know I I chase people. Every day, you try to find, you know, a a moment in time and you try to be as accessible and available as you can be for people and hope that you will find people that'll be accessible and available to you. And that's really all you can do. I, I I I wish I had a great, you know, here's a great answer. But I find that when you become Margaret Atwood, you get a tremendous amount of opportunity. The climb to become that person, it's taken Margaret Atwood a lot of years. You know, it, and that's, I mean, and I, and I bring her up because suddenly you see the master classes and suddenly you see this and, you know, we could list 20 of those people, Judy Bloom, Stephen King, you know, you know, people that whose work we we honor. But up until then on the climb, it's just, it's just a lot of work. and And I haven't found a shortcut to it.
0: And what uh, what it means is, means when when you do talk to people that are at that level, they're still having the same struggle the rest of us are having because they've got to face the blank page the next day and, and figure out the next book.
1: Well, and I remembered uh, Stephen King was talking to somebody. It was an article I was reading at one point, and and he said, you know, he still makes it a point when he lands in town in a town for something to go do a signing, and you know he could skip doing a signing. But he still makes a point. You still need to get out there. You still need to be present. So, you know, you're still, in that sense, hawking books one story at a time.
0: That is, if I, if I have the opportunity to ask the question, I wonder if somebody like that, somebody like Steven Spielberg, a uh, fun fact that blows my mind that I, I use as part of my evidence as uh, reality is a simulation, uh, is that Duel came out the same day as Carrie, Uh, So you get the two Stevens the same day. Whatever was in the water that day, that was the day to release some new media. Oh my God! Um, But uh, I wonder, was somebody like that or Margaret Atwood? Um, But I'm gonna pick on uh, Stephen King because I just read The Institute and it's still brilliant. It's still that great, that same great thing. I'm coming to and so excited to to get from it, and it it makes me wonder how does. He get to real people and understand. You know, I mean, was the last time he genuinely had to worry about a bill, but he writes about people that worry about bills. He writes about people with, with issues, and I just wonder how you maintain that tether to uh, reality and 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 to and to real folks.
1: You know, look, I I, I I think it's a Tim McGraw song or something. You stay stay humble, stay hungry. You know, I think some of that goes to it. You know, you, you have to remember when and, 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 and never, you know, the, as much money as you have, you're still a paycheck away from, you know, and I think that you there's a piece of you that has to remember that. And I also think that some of it is you go places, you hear people, you know what people are saying, you know, we're not immune to that. And certainly in this day and age, it's very easy to sit in a forum about anything and hear those people and then you know and some of it is it's why we write you know we're writers we have we have stories we want to tell and those are part of who populates the stories he wants to tell you know he is a man and you know if you follow his twitter feed he is a man of messages
0: Well, he's probably hunting those morsels the same as we are (laughs) exactly let me uh, ask you a question that uh, only you can answer, but that is probably impossible to answer. And I just acknowledge that up front. Um, but, and, and then and then again, I'll, I'll ask you a couple more and we'll call it a day. Um, but um, what is it about writing, about sitting there with a written word that satisfies a need for storytelling, that all the production in the world of a television series, show running, all the things that you have done and, and could spend that time focusing to continue to do, what does that satisfy? What, how is that differently satisfying that you that you obviously feel compelled to continue doing both and are enjoying them?
1: Um, to quote your friend, Greg Villman, it's mine. You know, and I think that that is when, when we do television film, they are, they, they are collaborative arts. And and that's the beauty of them, by the way, that's not a rub. That is the beauty of them. I mean, you go in there and, and, and when when the work is good, it really is sort of about best idea wins. And it really is, you know, one of the things when we did Haven was, you know, the 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 gorgeousness of Nova Scotia itself, which is where we filmed. And you know, because obviously it looks a lot like Maine. But the to watch the art department, which was, you know, Jennifer Stewart and Terry Quinn and Darlene Lewis, and I'm gonna just leave and Kevin Lewis and there's a hundred people that 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 formed this this group. Um to watch what they brought alive from the words that were coming in. You know. it's breathtaking because it's not in your talent pool and you're like wow how do they make this out of nothing you know and so you get to enjoy everybody's art you get to bring what you hope is your art and you know but television is a beast you know it's it's 14 hour days when they're good days it's 16 hour days when they're bad days we won't talk about horrible days you know it's it's time condensed. It's it's a put the gas you know put the gas pedal down and go and and it's a beast. Novel writing is about you. It's and it's about your art and it's about it's about so one is almost an external art. One is almost an internal art. I guess would be the best way I could say it. It's about what I hear, what I see. It's about quietness. It's about me and one pad of paper or one computer and and just going and and there's a joy in that that's satiating differently. And there's a joy in the other that, you know, you step back and you've got 120 people and we're all gonna blow this and look at that. And boy, what a great day it was. And and one is, you know, and, and they're just different highs. They are just different highs. And, and cause sometimes it's nice to have a party with all of your friends. And sometimes it's nice to have a quiet dinner. <laughs> kind of the difference?
0: You must have a tremendous amount of joy in your life. I can see your, your face lighting up as you describe the, both these passions of yours. Um, Stephanie Duell, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them?
1: You know, the answer to that, hmm. I'm not sure I've seen one, but do I believe in them? Absolutely.
0: Fair enough. And um, We'll make this my last catch-all question because I always want to end this while we're still having fun before it, <laughs> it becomes a <laughs> long and tortured experience. Um, but uh, if there was one bit of advice you could go back to give to yourself at the start of Carousel, at the start of your career, or both, something you could take back to young you and say, hey, do this Employ this mentality, this will make all the difference and make things easier for you. For all the writers and would-be film producers out there listening, what would you tell young you and what could they take away from that?
1: Take the notes. (laughs) (laughs) Take the notes. Doesn't have to be taken the way it was handed to you. Hear it, absorb it, take the notes. People want you to be good.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for making time for this conversation today. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, stock you, buy all your books, all that good stuff?
1: Well, okay, this is the new one. and
0: Available uh, December 10th.
1: December 10th, uh, up for pre-order now at, at, at Amazon, where the other two are also located, um, but at all your average booksellers. Um you can find me at StephanieDuel.com, which is gonna be tricky because it's Stephanie S-T-E-F-A-N-I, kind of like when Stefani, dual de dot com. And are you on uh,
0: Twitter, Instagram,
1: all that stuff? Yes, I am. I, I am I am I am everywhere good people should be who are <laughs> promoting their books. So yes, you will find me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Um I am infrequently on tumblr (laughs) let me be honest i'm infrequently on tumblr but i am everywhere good people should be that are busy saying please read sid you might actually like her
0: Oh, I guarantee they will um, get ready for an absolute treat, esteemed audience. Uh, and as always, find me at middlegradeninja.com. Keep up with what's going on in the show. Don't forget to download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast, The Book of David, Chapter One. Yada yada yada. You know who I am. All good stuff. Go check it out. Uh, Stephanie, I have been asking our guests to sign us off with the very specific, very ninja-like sign-off phrase, "Hiya and what have you." Will you sign us off?
1: Oh, hiya and what have you? <laughs>